You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. For most of human history, people have been deeply aware of what we might just call the supernatural. Uh, of there's more to this life than this life. And because they were aware of the supernatural, they were deeply aware of the biggest questions of life. Uh, questions like, why am I alive? What am I here for? What's the purpose of my life? What happens after I die? For the, for the vast majority of human history, human beings have, have felt all of that. They lived in what we might call a world with windows. A world with windows is a world that you can, you can see through this world to, to the world to come, to something beyond just this life. Uh, they could see through this life to the next life. Uh, in a lot of ways, for most of human history, human beings have assumed the supernatural. That obviously there is more to this life th than this life. That has been the, the, the assumption. But you and I live in a world now where that assumption no longer holds. Uh, rather than a supernatural world, right, that infuses all of these big questions about life. All of those big meta questions of life. Uh, rather than that supernatural world, we live in what one sociologist calls a super flat world. A super flat world. In a super flat world, uh, the world has no windows. Uh, the dominant ethic is this life is all of, there is. Uh, this life is it. There's nothing beyond this life. In a super flat world, everything is shrunk down to what we can see and taste and touch and smell. Uh, in a super flat world, it's shallow. It's a world without depth and meaning and purpose. In a super flat world, to deal with all of those sort of meta questions, we distract ourselves. Rather than staring at the things that matter most, we, we give ourselves to trivial things. So Mark Sayers, about a little over a decade ago, he wrote a book called uh, The Road Trip That Changed the World. And listen to him describe what happens in a super flat culture, in a super flat world. He says, in a super flat culture, we escape into obsessions and hobbies, interests that bear little, little ultimate consequence. We move and shift around meaning, giving weight to things that do not deserve mountains of time and attention. The 21st century will be marked by consumption on one hand and also a flagrant misuse of time. With religion off the agenda, so the supernatural is no longer there, our culture finds new avenues of devotion and distraction. Instead of moving us toward relationships and people, our super flat culture pushes us toward things. Millions of hours in the 21st century will be spent working through TV series, scanning social media network sites, gorging on celebrity gossip, downloading music, flipping through home magazines, playing video games. By the way, one billion hours a day are spent on YouTube. Isn't that crazy? One billion hours a day. He goes on to say, things will take precedence over people. So, so things will become more important than people. Meaningless activity will overtake our lives. There's nothing wrong with interests and hobbies in their right place, but the 21st century culture will gorge on such activities. The real issues of human existence that have set front and center of the human mind have, in the super flat world, been shoved aside. They're just too heavy. Instead, we buzz across the surface of life, never venturing below. What a commentary on our culture. 
In a super flat world, a world without windows, possessions are more important than people. A distracted sort of shallowness becomes the norm. Trivial activities just take over the center place of our life. And sadly, the deepest longings of our heart are shoved aside and pressed down and suppressed. And friends, the resurrection is one of God's remedies for our windowless world. That's what the resurrection is meant to do. The resurrection, it opens the windows in our world. It opens the windows in our life. It pulls us out of that super flat culture that we are all living in and being discipled by. And it pulls us back into the supernatural world that God created. It reminds us that there is more to life than this life. Amen? There is more to life than this life. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, listen to what he links to that now. He's been raised from the dead, and then he calls Jesus' resurrection this. He calls it the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, in calling Jesus' resurrection the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, Paul is saying, um, hey, what happened to Jesus on the third day is like a movie trailer. It is showing us what every son and daughter has waiting for them. The resurrection of Jesus in this way is a preview of coming attractions. It is just meant to whet our appetite for what is in front of us. That's what the resurrection of Jesus is meant to do, to to pull the shades up, to open up the window so that we can see through this life to the next life, the most important life. We often summarize the good news of Jesus like this. We are all idiots. That's the humbling part, right? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all idiots. That's part one. Part two, we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. It is so bright, the future we have in Jesus. And part three, anyone can get in on this. And that's so true. I think that's a really great way to summarize the good news of Jesus. And here's what I want to do with you today. I want the the resurrection of Jesus to remind you, one, of that bright future, And I want to just work out some of what the Bible has to say about this incredibly bright future that Jesus opens up to us. I want to just think and meditate upon that that bright future that is before every son and daughter of God. Two things about this bright future that I want you to see. Number one, there is an incredibly bright future for the universe, for the universe, The gospel is much bigger than most of us think it is. Most of us have a really truncated small view of the good news of Jesus. Most people, when when you ask them to talk to you about the good news of Jesus, they're going to talk solely in personal terms. So it's going to be things like this. Uh, The good news of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection is the uh, the way that we are made right with God. It's the way that we are saved. It's the way that we have been made new, new creations in Christ. It's the way that we have been rescued from the wrath of God, right? We're going to talk about it like that. In other words, it is for me. The good news of Jesus is for my, my life. And that's true, right? The gospel is not less than that, but it is much more than that. The gospel is for me is telling a half-truth about what the gospel is for. It's much bigger than our little lives. It is as big. The good news of Jesus is as big as the universe itself. The Bible begins in Genesis 1 and 2 with God creating the heavens and the earth. And it doesn't take long for the plot to really thicken, right? The plot clots in Genesis chapter 3 as sin breaks what God has made. 
Right? When our first parents ate the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3, that sin that came into the world broke everything. And in response to their sin, God curses not just the serpent, not just the woman, Eve, not just the, the man, Adam, but he also curses creation itself. Listen to Genesis 3, 17 and 18. God, in pronouncing the curse, says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Now, in Romans chapter 8, Paul looks back to Genesis 3, that, that very cursing of creation, sin breaking creation. And here's how Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Paul says, for creation, for, for the creation was subjected to futility. It was broken. Like the universe broke when that first sin was introduced into it. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Paul's saying all the way back to Genesis 3, creation broke in that, that moment. The universe broke in that moment. Charles Spurgeon, when he is thinking about Romans 8 and Genesis 3, he, he says it this way. He says, everything here, like in your life and in my life, like the world that we live in, everything here in creation is blighted and subject to storm or to decay or to sudden death or to calamity of some sort. It is a fair world. In other words, he's saying there's a lot of beauty in it, right? I just got back from Colorado and a hike in the most beautiful scenery I could possibly imagine. There's, there's beauty in this world. It's a fair world, he says, but there is the shadow of the curse over it all. He goes on to say, the slime of the serpent is on all of our Edens now. It's so true. There is no place you can go in this universe where the curse does not cast a shadow. There is no place you will visit in this world where you will not find some of the serpent's slime all over it. It's everywhere. The world is broken by sin in this way. Uh, Tim Keller went on to talk about it this way. He says, nature is not what it ought to be or what it was created to be. It is, it's wonderful to see how nature's life-giving quality continually seeks to reestablish itself, bringing new life out of death, but the whole universe is deteriorating and running down, losing more energy than it can generate. Everything in nature wears down and dies, and he ends it like this. He says, nature is currently a killer. Now, here's the thing. We all know this and feel this. There's not a day that goes by in your life and in my life where we don't have something in us say, this just isn't the way it's supposed to be. The world is not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be that hard to keep your house clean. It just, it shouldn't be this difficult. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. We all feel that because it's true. That's a true statement about the world, that the world is broken, so broken that it really is amazing, not when things go wrong, but when things go right. It's that broken. It's that bent by sin. And if you're not careful, you're going to begin to believe that this broken world that you live in now, that you occupy, that you see now, that this broken world is natural. But it's not natural. Nothing you see now is natural. Everything you see now has the serpent's slime on it, has the shadow of the curse cast over it. Uh, Eugene Peterson, he said it this way. He said, everything in creation is being more or less held back. The, the slime of the serpent has, has decayed and, and broke everything in this world. 
So Paul says in Romans 8, 20 and 21, for the creation was subjected to, to futility. And then he says this though, in hope. So, so yes, it's been broken, but it's been broken in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That's the world you live in. Right now, it's in bondage to corruption. But there's, it's in hope. It's got this longing to be set free from that corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul is looking at us in Romans 8 and saying, hey, God hasn't given up on this broken world. He hasn't abandoned this broken world. It's, it's his world. And he has a plan for his world. Now, think again about the story of the Bible. The, the Bible begins with God creating everything. Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 hits. And sin breaks everything. But the breaking does not get the last word in the Bible. Sin never gets the last word in the Bible. The story ends in Revelation 21 and 22 with God renovating this broken world. Making new this broken world. And the movie trailer to his renovation plan of making this world completely new again. The movie trailer was shown 2,000 years ago in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus announces the good news that every part of this broken, frustrated universe will be fixed. That's what the resurrection reminds us of. I love the story of an African mom who was asked by her son, what does God do all day? It's a pretty good question, isn't it? Like, what is God doing all day? I mean, he's alive, he's doing the thing, he never sleeps. So, so what is God doing all day? And the mom answered by saying, uh, here's what God does all day. He fixes broken things. And that is so true. This is what God is up to in the universe. He is going to fix every broken thing. The gospel is the good news announcing that everything broken in this world will one day be fixed. The, the day is coming when verse 21 of Romans 8 is, is going to be true. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That day is coming for the universe. That the resurrection reminds us of that bright future for the universe. It also reminds us that there is an incredibly bright future for us. Not just for the universe. The gospel is as big as the universe, but it also is, is reminding us that you have a bright future. That that bright future is also for us. The resurrection opens up the windows of our world. It reminds us that those in Christ, if you're in Christ... Your best life is waiting for you on the other side of the grave. If you are in Christ, your best life isn't back there somewhere. It is there somewhere. Your best life is waiting for you on the other side of the grave. Here's the, the two verses in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. that I, I'm praying that the Lord will just stick into your soul. It's verses 51 and 52. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 51. Paul says, behold. So that's Paul saying, and it's a command, by the way. You see that exclamation mark there. That's Paul saying, I want you to stop everything else in your life, and I want you to behold. I want you to gaze upon. I want you to set this in front of you. I want you to pay attention to this. Give your full attention to this. Behold, he says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. He's saying, there's going to be some of us, when this happens, you're going to still be alive. Others, you're going to have died. But, but not everyone. There's going to be some that are still alive when this happens. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Imperishable, he says, and we shall be changed. It's not that you might be changed. If you're lucky, you're going to be changed. We shall be changed. Two times, Paul says, here's what's coming in your future. You, son and daughter of God, you rescued by Jesus, you who are in Christ, you will be changed. It's a comprehensive change. It's a change that will last forever. Uh, there's a theological word to describe that change, and the word is glorification. Paul is saying there's going to be a day where you're going to be glorified. That's the language he uses in Romans 8. When you are glorified, you are changed forever. Now, what does that word mean, glorification? Listen to Wayne Grudem uh, describe it. He says it this way. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. So when Jesus saves a person, he does a lot of things to a person. And the last thing he's going to do to a human being that he has saved is this, glorification. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the body of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time, listen to this, perfect resurrection bodies like his own. I don't know about you, but I'm in on that. That sounds amazing to me. Perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Uh, let me break the idea of glorification down into two parts. You're going to receive two things at this moment of glorification. Number one, you're going to receive new bodies. We'll receive new bodies. Now, this is the point of verses 35 through 49 in this text. If you had the ESV version of the Bible, right above verse 35, you're going to find this heading describing what this paragraph is about. Resurrection bodies, right? This is what Paul is laying out for us. And here's the logic that Paul is employing throughout 1 Corinthians 15. The logic goes like this. What will happen to Jesus or what did happen to Jesus will happen to you. So his life becomes your life. What happened to him will happen to you. That's the, the logic. This is why he calls Jesus the first fruits. What happened to Jesus will happen to you. So Jesus, the first fruits, right? So, th so that means that just like Jesus got a new body, you're going to get a new body. You are going to get a new, perfect resurrection body. Now, Paul tells us a little bit about this body in verses 42 through 44. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And here's this imagery to kind of just whet our appetite on what this body is going to be like. It says, what is sown, right? That's his imagery of like, you're going to die one day. It's going to be, your body's going to be sown into the, to the earth, right? What is sown is perishable. There's your body now. It's perishable. It decays. It breaks down. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. There's your resurrection body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. There's your resurrection body. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. That's your resurrection body, your perfect body. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Friends, if you are in Christ, you have a bright future because a new body's coming. That new body is on the way for you. Now, if you're hearing this and you just can't get yourself to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that Jesus got a new body, and because Jesus got a new body, you're going to get a new body someday, that you're going to be glorified. This comprehensive change is coming for you. If you just can't get yourself to believe that, you at least should want to believe that. 
right? There should be something in you that just like, I wish that were true. Now, why is that? Because the deepest parts of our souls long for what the resurrection alone delivers. You have an ache for you for these resurrection, or in you for these resurrection promises. The deepest parts of your soul long for a new body one day. Long for a bright future like this one day. Uh, This summer, I turned 44. (sighs) It happened, 44. And a few years ago, I read an article that the point of the article was, uh, was trying to find what is like the pinnacle of a human life physically. Like what, what is the peak of our sort of body's potential? And uh, the article said uh, 27 <laughs> was the peak. It didn't say 44, right? So uh, after 27, all of your explosive sort of movements as a human being, it falls off the cliff. It's going downhill really fast. And then all of your like endurance uh, sort of movements, it's a slow decline from 27, right? That's the physical peak. And the truth is aging is hard for every one of us. There's not a single person in here who's like, you know what I love? My body breaking down. It's all, nobody says that. I mean, I'm to the point where the most, one of the most dangerous things I do is sneeze now. It's like, if I can sneeze and not throw out my back, it is a pure miracle from the Lord. And as we grow older, more and more of the pieces and parts of our body break down. We experience loss of things physically that, hear me, we will never get back in this life. They're gone for good in this life. Things like vibrancy and energy and strength and durability and beauty, all of it, all of it passing away in this life. And deep down, every single one of us hates it. What is that dislike? Why is that dislike in us? That dislike is a longing for resurrection. That's what that is. That's the reason you hate it. Those longings are a signpost pointing us to resurrection promises that one day everything the enemies of Satan, sin, and death have taken away from us, God will get it, uh, give it back to us, but in a better way. Th- that's what that longing is down there. It's a want for resurrection. Now, what are our glorified changed bodies going to be like? Uh, really, Paul just tells us they're going to be better. That's his main point is to say, they're going to be a lot better than your body now. They're going to be way better than your body now. He says, now you're perishable. Then you're going to be imperishable, never prone to decay. They're going to last forever in a perfect resurrection state. Now they're, they're dishonorable. Then they're going to be glorified. Now they're, they're just, they're weak. He, he says, but, but then they're going to be full of power and vibrancy. He says, now you might think of them as a natural body, but then they're going to be like this spiritual body that's going to be amazing for you. And Paul uses a metaphor from agriculture in verse 37. He says, and what you sow is not the body that is to be. Like you're going to lay this body into the ground, but the body you're about to get is not going to be like it. It's going to be so much better than the body that is. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So Paul's just inviting us to imagine. Uh, Let me just put it maybe in an image for you. Imagine you have never seen a live oak tree and you have never seen an acorn. Okay, just imagine that. 
and a person comes up to you with a small little acorn. And they, they let you see it. They let you feel it. They, they just put it in front of you for you to acknowledge. Then they walk you to this beautiful field where there are these majestic 60, 70 feet tall, I mean, just massive, beautiful live oak trees. And then they look at you and say, you know where that live oak tree came from? This little acorn. That's where it came from. You would look back at them and say, I, I don't believe you. I don't believe that tree could come from that little seed. Because that little seed looks really weak. That tree looks amazing. This little seed looks like, I mean, it just looks like nothing. But that tree is beautiful. And Paul's saying, there's your resurrection body. This body now is like that acorn that's going to be laid in the ground. And what grows in its place is going to blow your mind, Paul says. That's what's waiting for us. I mean, who, who knows what our future resurrection bodies are going to be like? Jonathan Edwards, when he's just, just dreaming about this and just imagining, he says, what if uh, now our bodies have these five senses, but what if our resurrection body has like a thousand senses for you to take in more of God's world and more of God himself? What, what, what if that's true? When C.S. Lewis is dreaming about it and, and just thinking about it, he says it like this. He says, God will make the feeblest and the filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, although of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That's what we're in for and nothing less, he says. And then he goes on to say in another moment, he says, if you could see what your fellow Christians will one day be right now, if you could see that right now, you would be tempted to worship them. That is what the little seed of their life is about to turn into in that resurrection body. Friends, as your bodies break, just know, if you are in Christ, your best days are not behind you. They're not at 27. That they are in front of you on the other side of the grave with these resurrection bodies. That that's where your brightest, best days are. So Paul says in verse 51, behold, I want you to stare at this. I want you to consider this. I want you to, to keep this in front of you. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. One day it's going to go off and the dead will be raised imperishable, new bodies, resurrection bodies, and we shall be changed. That day is coming for us. And on that day, we're going to receive new bodies and we're going to receive new inward beauty. The, the new inward beauty of holiness. One day we'll no longer have to fight that inward bent in us toward bad. But one day that fight's going to be over. Have you ever looked at yourself and just asked yourself the question, why is it that I keep failing and falling all the time, like over, 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 over and over again in the same areas? And then I get creative and I fail and fall in new areas. And like every area of my life, I can just see this in me. This proclivity and this, this drift toward and this even want of things I, I wish I didn't want. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? What is that? 
that disappointment, when you look at yourself and you're just like, man, I just see myself drifting toward bad things, things I, I wish I didn't drift toward. What is that disappointment? It is a want for resurrection. Can you imagine what your life would be fully set free from sin? Not an ounce of pride left in you. Not an ounce of bitterness and resentment left in you. Not, not an ounce of any sin. Can you imagine what your life would be like? Can you imagine the day where Jesus will finally and fully kill every last remnant of the sin in you? Ray Ortland, he encourages us like this. He says, don't see your life now as the final measure of your happiness, your worth, your significance. This present life of sighs and groans will one day yield to shouts and dances. Friends, that's true of you. This present life of sighs and groans will one day yield to shouts and dances. That's what the resurrection promised. The, the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that there is a day coming when we will receive new bodies, fully renewed hearts, and a fully renovated world. Friends, that is the bright future in front of you. That is what is coming for every son and daughter of Jesus. Now, I'm going to end with this. I just want to ask this last question. Why does any of that matter? Why does it matter? Let me finish by just sort of addressing an objection that I think is probably here. It's in us somewhere, and it's in this room. Just imagine a person hearing this and saying, you Christians are just ridiculous. And maybe that's you. It's like, you, you guys live in a make-believe world. There is no such thing as heaven. There is no such thing as a glorified body. There's no such thing as eternal life with Jesus. There's no uh, such thing as uh, a future life. No, it, this life is all there is. You're going to be laid in the grave one day, and it's all going to be over. The, the rest of all of this stuff that you're talking about, it's all make-believe. I, I want to address that objection. And to do that, it, it reminds me of a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia. The Chronicles of Narnia is a set of books that C.S. Lewis uh, wrote. And there's one scene in the book called The Silver Chair that addresses that very objection, this very thing. And the scene has uh, Puddleglum in it. It has Eustace, Jill, and Prince Rillian. And these four have been captured by a witch in Underland. So, so they're in a, a world called Underworld or Underland. And they've been captured there. And the world is dark and depressing. It's a world without windows. It's a world that makes you believe this is all that there is. It's, it's just this dark, depressing world. That is all you're going to get in this life. They're, they're captured down there by this witch. And they start to try to tell the witch about Overland. That no, this is not the only world. There is a world above this world that's better than this world. It's got a thing like the sun in it that gives light to everything and helps things grow. It's got something like Aslan in it, this Jesus-like character that, that can make all things new. It's got, it's got those things in it overworld. And she looks back at him and is like, no, it, it doesn't have those things. This is the only world. This is the real world. She's looking back at them and saying, Overland, Narnia, th those worlds do not exist. You have just made all of that up, she says says. She says, you talk of the sun. Here's, here's why you think there's such a thing as a sun. You've just seen a little lamp and you've just then imagined there's something called the sun, but there is no sun. It's just this world. There is just a lamp. There is just candles. That's all there is. You, you talk about Aslan. 
All you've done is seen a little kitten and then you've imagined that there's such a thing as a lion. But, but that's all you've done. There is no such thing as a lion. That, that is a make-believe world. All there is is the here and now. This is all there is. Lamps and kittens. That's it. There, there is nothing else. And that's when Puddleglums steps up and says this to the witch. Ma'am, there's one more thing to be said. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all of those things. Trees and grass and suns and moons and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's the funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world that's better than your world. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. So thank you kindly for your supper, but we're leaving and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. That is one of my favorite paragraphs in everything I've ever read from C.S. Lewis. What's happening here? Well, they are in underworld, right? It's a world without windows. It's, this world is all that you have. But they find in them something that is longing for overland. This world with the sun, this world with Aslan, this world that is supernatural, just infused with life and beauty that this dark world doesn't have. They're trapped in this world, but, but there's something in them longing to see through the windows for something more than this world. And here's Puddleglum's argument. Here's what he's saying to the witch. His argument goes like this. Witch, if this is all there is, why does my heart long for so much more? That, that's his argument. If this is all there is, why is it that I have been made in such a way where my heart is just not satisfied with anything I'm seeing in this world and it's longing for something else? Why is that? Why does nothing down here in this life satisfy the deepest longings of my heart? Why does every earthly high fade so fast? Why can the great theologian Johnny Manziel say, I had every single thing I could have ever wanted. And when I got everything I wanted, I think I was the most empty that I'd ever felt inside. Some of you know that feeling. You came in here today well-fed, well-loved, well-clothed, and yet when you just give yourself a little bit of space to hear the voices inside of you, you find that your heart is screaming for more. But why is that? Well, the Bible's answer to that is, it's because your soul was made for more than anything this world offers. That, that's why you're still longing for more. C.S. Lewis once said, if you find in yourself desires and longings that this world cannot satisfy, the best explanation is you were made for another world. And friends, the resurrection reminds us that world's coming. It's coming. Will you bow with me? Let me give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful.
here's the good news of Jesus for you. We're all idiots. We all need a savior, right? We're all idiots. We're all sinners. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. And anyone can get in on this. Friend, if you're not in on this, may this be your day to make that decisive step toward Jesus where you turn from your sin and you throw your life upon up the resurrected Christ. He stands so ready to save you, rescue you, to walk you into that bright new future. So if you're finding in your heart longings that nothing in this world can satisfy, it's because they weren't made to do that. You were made for, a, for another world. You were made for Jesus himself. So, so give your life to him. And for the rest of us, Paul says, behold, keep these things in front of you. Re remember that bright future that the resurrection promises. Keep the windows of your life open so you can see through this world into the next one. So God, would you help us do that? Would you help us do that, oh God? And it's in your good name, amen.